Well, we're about to start a new sermon series called Resolved. Okay, we're looking in the book of Daniel. But before we uh, go to Daniel, I just want to make a few comments um, about what this really means. Because many might think, what does he mean, resolving a conflict or something like that? No, resolved in what we're using this word to be more like someone who has a determination in their heart. They're set, they're purposed in the heart for something ahead in their lives, whatever it may be, whatever comes their way, um, that they're resolved in their heart. Um, whatever, whatever, whatever difficulty, trial, tribulation, struggle, um, you're resolved within your heart. And so what we wanted to talk about in the coming weeks is just through the book of Daniel, looking at Daniel, looking at a situation, looking at the historical background, and trying to see what that really looks like and how that is a reflect, reflect on us. So some of the things that when you're looking at the book of Daniel, there's a lot of historical background. And so as we go through that, we may go through that for a little bit in the first few verses. And then we will have a quick video here. Um, but I just wanted to share that with you to say that understanding Daniel's, understanding a 70-year Babylonian captivity, and also understanding some of why it came about. So I just wanted to give you some of that highlight. One of the things that uh, when we look at stories and backgrounds in our near history, and I say near American history, we think of the person Helen Keller. We think of a prolific person in, in recent years, we call the last hundred years. But we don't hear much about the parents. And we don't hear much about how the parents came to the place where they actually found Helen Keller's teacher who taught her everything that she knew throughout her lifetime. Annie Sullivan was a woman of, of, of just an amazing ability to be able to teach Helen and to give her the, the courage and the, and the strength to be able to get through a disability such as blindness. But her parents had to go quite a bit. They had to be determined to find something for their child, not knowing what the future would hold. I mean, there were many children at that time that were blind, but how many would become so prolific as her? And so their parents had to go through quite a bit. Both their parents had to find someone like an Annie Sullivan. Um, and it's an inspiring story because, you know, they had to search. And one of the things was the mother, Helen's mother, had to search and found out that she researched a person by the name of Laura Brigman or Bridgman, which she read from Charles Dickens' American Notes. And so in 1886, she and, her fa and Helen's father, Arthur, traveled from their home in Alabama to Baltimore to find a Dr. Chisholm, who uh, was a doctor of, of dealing with disease of ear and throat, um, to get some advice from him. He then told them to turn to Alexander Graham Bell, yes, the one who invented the telephone, who was working with deaf children at the time, they turned to him. And he then in turn advised them to go and look for a, a person or look towards um, a contact in the Perkins Institute for the Blind where Laura Bridgman herself had been educated. So they traveled to Boston and found the school director there who asked a former student, Annie Sullivan, to teach her daughter. So they had to travel through many 
stages and many ways and roads to get to the person that would totally affect their child's life. So much so that we look back and realize that Helen Keller is one of those people that you can look as a portrait of looking at someone who was, could have been down and out in her disability, could have played the victim role, could have lived a life of poor me, but instead she was determined to make a difference in her life. And she did. Because of Annie Sullivan, she was determined herself, Helen, to be able to become someone so amazing. But that, that point I'm making is that it took parents like Helen's parents to be determined in order for Helen to be determined. She was resolved in her heart that her life was going to be more than just sitting around in a room living in the dark. And we know her story of writing so many books and having to touch so many lives that she's, in, even later I'm going to share some quotes, that she wasn't a victim in her situation. And as we look at life and we wonder what hits us in our situations and our difficulties and our trials and our tribulations in our lives, whether they be personal conflicts or it can be conflicts in a church or conflicts in a family or conflicts in family life, things that you've grown up all your life and you can't seem to fight them off. I think that this is just a story and a reminder of how important it is that it's not always the situation that could bring us down but it's whether our heart's resolved and determined to get through the situation, whether our heart is set in purpose to say, I'm going to move forward no matter what, that we won't allow the situation to consume us. We won't allow fear to consume us, but we'll allow fear to push its, push its side and the situation and have a heart that's resolved and determined to tackle and to, uh, to overcome any obstacle in our lives. See, it's not always the situation, is it? But it could be more than our hearts that are drawn away from. The situation is just uh, something that ignites us to live a life that sometimes can be a victim role. And so when we look at Daniel and we look at the history of what Daniel stands for, we understand that it's more than just the person. There's a background. So look with me to chapter 1 because in verse 1 because you're going to see in verse 1 I'm, I'm going to highlight quite a bit of history here. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. And we got to stop there because the third year of his reign was around 605 B.C. His reign was from 609 B.C. to 598 B.C. At this point, uh, Egypt was fighting against Judah and, and Babylon was helping Judah to fight off Egypt because Egypt and Pharaoh Necho was the, the big tyrant, the big king, the, the big nation that was over all other nations, but Babylon was becoming stronger and stronger. And as Judah was falling by the wayside, they were falling by the wayside because they were sinning before their great God. They were willfully defiant and rebellious against God. And God was dealing with them, and he was using these particular foreign nations that, were, that he was using them as his servant to be able to judge his people and to deal with his people. So this is kind of the background. So as we look at this, we're looking at Jehoiakim, but we're, before we get to King Nebuchadnezzar, we have to look at Jehoiakim because here's some information just on him. And it's me mentioned even in the prophet Jeremiah. There's just a few highlights here. He was appointed by Pharaoh Necho to change his name from Elikim to Jehoiakim. 
Judah's kings were vassals to the Pharaoh of Egypt at that time. And this is around that 609-608 time. And then Jeremiah prophesied against Jehoiakim, for he oppressed, exhorted, and shed innocent blood against the people of Israel. And he did it to get money and to build himself a new palace. So it was for selfish gain that he did these, for his vain pleasures that he began to create. And so what kings would do is in their dominance, in their tyrants, in their position, they would do whatever they can to manipulate the people to gain what they wanted in their own pleasures. And so even Jeremiah, as he spoke against them, he even spoke in Jeremiah 26, 20 through 24. He said that he killed and executed innocent prophets. So what Jeremiah did was he proclaimed, and he was called the weeping prophet because he proclaimed that which God told him to proclaim. And as Jeremiah did that, he wasn't a fan. He would call for the people to repent, and he told them what their sin was, and they hated him for it, especially the kings. And so... When Judah was set in and they had their prophets like Jeremiah, they did the same because they were true prophets, not false prophets. And they will proclaim the sin of Israel. Well, the kings, if they didn't like what they heard, they would execute prophets that were good. Now, in Deuteronomy 18, a false prophet would be executed by God himself. But when a true prophet spoke, God would honor him, but then the king would come over and execute them. And so they were living in their pleasure of trying to please themselves and their position saying, I have a right as a king to do what I want. And, and if I am, am I'm a dominant individual and top dog, then I can do that. But what happened was he took matters into his own hands and killed innocent people. God saw that as sin. And when God saw that as sin, although in his heart he thought he was doing the right thing, God said, you're not doing the right thing. So God began to create judgment against his people. And so during his reign, and it even says Jeremiah 24.1, I think I have that. I'm going to read that to you, 24, it's, um, excuse me, 2 second, second Kings 24.1 through 4, and it speaks of Jehoiakim. And it says, during Jehoiakim's reign, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked, and Jehoiakim was his subject for three years. But then he rebelled against him, and the Lord sent against him the Babylonians, Syrian, Mobites, and the Ammonites raiding bands. He sent him to destroy Judah. Why? Because Jehoiakim was sinning against God, and God was using foreign nations to overcome his own people. God was calling them, these people, these foreign nations, his servants to deal with his own people. Now that's how great sin is in God's eyes. When we look at the history in the Old Testament, if, God is the, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and God is, du is duly the same, then he deals with sin in almost the same way. We know that Jesus has dealt with it for us as a substitutionary atonement, but yet sin, even in our walk with Christ today, is still dealt the same. And yet God, he's dealing with the same, and he sees sin as, as it is. And in verse 3, he goes on this in 2 Kings 24, verse 3 says, Just as the Lord had announced, he rejected Judah because of all his sins, which Manasseh had committed. Because he killed innocent people, stained Jerusalem with their blood, and the Lord was unwilling to forgive them. So this historical background is that Jehoiakim was an evil king, and Manasseh before him. And his father, Jehoiakim's father, though he set up what they called reforms, they didn't last very long. 
because the sin in the hearts of man was overcoming that. And so they had an issue there. And so now God brings in Nebuchadnezzar. So in Daniel verse 1, it says, Now Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Why? Because God had to deal with his people in sin, that he overtook it. And so you see Nebuchadnezzar, who is the son of Nabopolazar, the king of Babylon from 625 to 605, as a crown prince, Nebuchadnezzar has led his father's army against Pharaoh Necho and destroys them at, the, at, the, at Carchemish, which is on the Euphrates River in the northern Syrian area in 605. So this begins what is known as the 70-year captivity. By defeating the Egyptians in Babylon was established in the strongest nation around in there, as I mentioned. So he was a servant of the Lord, and yet during those years when he became a servant of the Lord, Jehoiakim tried to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. And in 602, after serving him for three years, in 602 BC, he tried to do so, but it didn't work because God intervened. God dealt with his own people. He would not allow Jehoiakim to overcome Nebuchadnezzar. Now, I mean, that just, to me, when I think about that and I look at that in my logic sense, I know what it says in the scriptures. When I look at that, I'm like, wow, Lord, you would use a foreign nation, a secular nation, to discipline your people. And when your people try to overcome them, which seems like a good thing to do, you stop them and say no. I mean, God makes mention in Jeremiah 25, 7, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. In Jeremiah 27, 7, Nebuchadnezzar is my servant. So here we see in this background is that God has established him to say, this is my servant. Look with me, if you could read with me, because I think this is important. Why I'm highlighting history today is because you have to see clearly in all the books in the Old Testament that this is not just laid out in Daniel, but it's in 2 Kings and 1 Kings and Jeremiah. So Jeremiah makes comment on this. And I want to read this to you if I could. Would you come alongside with me and read with this? You don't have to read it out loud. Just, just follow me. In the fourth year, Jeremiah 25, 1, that Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, was the king of Judah. The Lord spoke to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah. That was the same as the first year that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon, which is, again, 605 B.C. So the prophet Jeremiah spoke to all the people of Judah, to all the people who were living in Jerusalem. Verse 3, for the last 23 years, from the 13th year that Josiah was the son of Ammon, was ruling in Judah until now, the Lord has been speaking to me, and I told you over and over again what he said, but you would not listen. And he's saying, you stubborn fools. No wonder Jeremiah wasn't popular. No wonder why they can't stand him. No wonder why they threw him in a cistern and wanted to kill him. Because he wasn't afraid to mince words. He pretty much said, you guys are fools. You weren't listening to me. And he goes on to say, over and over again, the Lord has sent his servants, the prophets, to you, but you have not listened or paid attention. He said through them, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and stop doing the evil things that you are doing. If you do, I will allow you to continue living here in the land that I gave you and your ancestors as a lasting possession. Meaning, if you just confess, repent, and obey me, I will give you this land. God didn't say, I wouldn't withhold it from you. I'll give it to you. All you have to do is just admit that you're wrong, you're sinners, and then I will bless you. But it says this, 
Do not pay allegiance to other gods and worship and serve them. Do not make me angry by doing these things to you. Then I will cause you any harm. I will not cause you any harm. Verse 7, so now the Lord says, you have not listened to me, but you have made me angry by the things that you have done. Thus you have brought harm on yourselves. Therefore, verse 8, the Lord who rules over all says, you have not listened to what I said. So I, the Lord, affirm that I will send for all the peoples of the north and my servant, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I will bring them against this land and in inhabitants and all the nations that surround it. I will utterly destroy this land, its inhabitants, and all the nations that surround it and make this everlasting ruins. I will make them objects of horror and hissing scorn. Whew. I'm getting sick of just reading this. I will put an end to the sounds of joy and gladness, to the glad celebrations of brides and grooms in these lands. I will put an end to the sound of people grinding meal. I will put an end to lamps shining in their houses. The whole area will become a desolate wasteland. These nations will be subject to the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when, verse 12, when the 70 years are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation of their sins. I will make the land of Babylon an ever, everlasting ruin. And I, the Lord, affirm it. I will do it, and I will bring on that land everything that said I would. I bring on it everything that is written in this book. I will bring on it everything Jeremiah has prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings will make slaves of the king of Babylon and his nation too. I will repay them for all that they have done. Let me stop here and say this. It's not gloom and doom. There's grace in here. God offered grace. He said, if you confess your sin, Israelites, you won't have to go through this. I won't put you through 70 years. I won't put you through all this struggle. I won't take you from your homes. God offered them grace. But they were so in depth and in deep with their sin, they couldn't see anymore. See, when sin happens is when it, it covers our sight, it blinds us from what's ahead. And so this is the reality of what's happening here in Daniel. But thankfully, Daniel becomes a character, a portrait of what could become. Now watch this. In verse 2, it says, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into his hand and with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar and to the house of his God and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. But here the word Lord is Adonai. He's the owner and ruler and sovereign God. And the word delivered... And that verse means that God delivered his people to Nebuchadnezzar. Now watch now. Just like I spoke about in Jonah. When God allowed Jonah to be swallowed up by the whale or what we call the big fish, it was grace. He saved him from dying. He could have threw them over and Jonah could have been dead. Now what, what is God doing? He's saving his people because he loves those whom he disciplines. He cares for those who he has to reprehend. And if he reprehends somebody, he does it with the purpose of saving them from their own soul. Why? Because sin, when we sin, when we're stuck in our sin, it might feel good, but it's not God's blessing. And God has to discipline us in order to get back on track. He's doing this. It might sound cruel for God to say, we're sending you away for a generation plus. You'll never see your land again. You'll die in this land. You won't be able to be at your home, to be able to, you know, walk your daughter down the aisle and be in your, your culture and your background and all that. 
You're not going to be able to celebrate like you would have liked to. But if you obey me even in this land, I'll bless you. Because in every case in the Old Testament, when we obeyed or when the people of God obeyed, they were blessed. When they disobeyed, they were cursed. And see, God was trying to offer them that. But this was prophesied in Deuteronomy 28, 36 through 37. It said that the Lord will force you and your king whom you will appoint over you to go away to a people whom you and your ancestors have not known and you will serve other gods of wood, stone there. You will become an occasion of horror and proverb and an object of ridicule to all the peoples to whom the Lord will drive you. So this was prophesied by Moses that this would happen. And the ridicule was that they were now servants of a secular people. When they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, they were servants to the Gentiles, but that wasn't the intention. But their sin is what brought that. It was a humbling that was happening. And so they were brought to this foreign land. And we understand that, but they, here, here's some questions I want to ask you before I show you a video. were these Israelites going to live for the rest of their lives? Most would agree that their circumstances would lend them toward to live in, in bondage. Isn't it true that they would live in bondage? They're in a foreign land. Foreign people had to live and subdue to themselves to a different culture. When we're placed in situations that are not acceptable according to our standards, are we considered in bondage? Meaning... How do we know if we're living in bondage? See, when we're in situations in our lives where we have a family situation, you have children who are living a life that you don't approve of, or you're in a family situation with a sibling that just doesn't want to talk to you anymore, you have a culture that consumes you to where anytime you try to be nice, they still think that you're being deceptive. Or is it just that you're in a situation and you just feel like there's no way out, therefore you live this perspective of life where you're just hopeless and helpless? Is it the situation that really puts us in bondage? Is it the circumstance that we live in our lives? I mean, think about it. These Israelites were placed in a culture, in a foreign land, with foods and all, with culture and all. Can you imagine if God had sent our nation to be submitting to a nation we consider evil and we would have to live there the rest of our days and adapt to a new culture, to a new way of living with new foods, maybe a food that you can't live with because you're allergic to and it'll make you vomit every time you eat it. I mean, just a situation where it's uncomfortable, where you might gain a disease when you live there. And yet what if God were to do that? How would you and I react to that? Sometimes we live in America and we feel like we're in bondage because we don't feel like we get what we want. What makes us to live in bondage or not? This is where Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were at. They were laid out, formerly known as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but they were placed in a culture against their desires and their will. And I wanted to give you guys a quick visual here. Well, it's not quick, it's five minutes. But I want to give you guys a little visual. It's Hollywood made, so you're going to enjoy it. 
And um, it's, it's a visual of what they were going, a depiction of Daniel, setting it up as to what could have been when the food came out, when the warden or the overseer came to speak to them, and a dictator like Nebuchadnezzar. So I want you guys to just look at this, if you guys have it set for me. You have to understand that at this particular point, servants don't request, they don't have preferences. When a dictator claims something, you're not to speak. It was a matter of his life. It was a matter of the overseer's life or the warden's life. It was a matter of them even determining whether to go to the king. And they didn't go to the king, as you notice, even in the scripture says that they just kept it a matter of secret. Because Kim Nebuchadnezzar wouldn't even deal with it. He would laugh at it and say, have them all killed. He would just go to the next person. The resolve that Daniel had, the determination to believe that God was going to sustain him and keep him or not, for his willingness to trust God and honor God to the point of death, that's what it took for him we know that in the changing of his names, we're quite clear as you look at the names that were changed to mean something specific. But in verse 8, as you look with me really quick, it says this, but, but Daniel resolved, it looked, in the ESV it says resolved, NIV resolved. In the New King James Version it says purposed. In the NET, NASB is made up his mind. In the NLT it says determined. Whichever that your version would hold, it would hold to the fact that it was something that was placed in his heart. In the Hebrew, it means that it was so deep within his heart, it was in the depths of his heart, that he could not respond any other way. And what was it that he was purposed in his heart, resolved in his heart to do? To not defile himself before his God. To not pollute himself, to not bring forth sin. He recognized that sin is what brought 70 years upon Judah and his people. And now he realizes that he had to honor God with everything. It's what we call today as conviction. He was a man with great conviction. But here is, it wasn't that he had this great conviction that saved him. In verse 9 it says this, And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. Really that word in the Hebrew is hesed, the covenant love. God stood forth by his covenant to honor Daniel and his willingness to honor God. It's that blessing of obedience, obedience, blessing, disobedience, cursing. It's not just the unconditional covenant of Abrahamic covenant. It was the Mosaic covenant. There was a condition, but Daniel loved God so much, it was resolved in his heart that he said, if you're going to kill me, might as well kill me now while I honor my God. It's like third world missionaries who are out there, the third world countries that we, and we hear the stories of people who had died for the sake of the gospel. They were willing to be determined. They were willing to be resolved in their heart saying, I will die for my God. See, in America, we have to be willing to do the same thing. We have to be willing to be resolved in our hearts, even to the point of death. See, when one is determined to accomplish something, one needs to have a few things. They need to have a goal in mind. And they need to be willing to sacrifice at no end and willing to endure that sacrifice. When you think of a person who's training for the Olympics, what do they do? They have a goal in mind, which is what? A gold medal. 
And what do they do? They train hard and hard. They sacrifice all pleasures of their lives for four years and train to the point where they can bring their body to, to, the, to the place of just unbearable measures. They, they go to as far as they can until they can't go anymore. And they work hard and they work so vigorously in a physical way that they train themselves to where it becomes natural. And then they endure the pain and they sacrifice their lives. And then you see many, like I've mentioned even last year when we talked about, you know, Phelps who was the, swim, the swimmer. Phelps who did what he had to do in order to get 26 gold medals or 23. Why? Because he was willing to sacrifice. He had the goal in mind, never gave up. He was resolved in his heart and determined that he was going to get that gold every time he went out to compete. Same thing with us. As Christians, every time we're out here serving the Lord, every day at every moment, we have to be resolved and determined in our hearts that no matter what situation we're in, no matter where our family is at, no matter how difficult it is that God can still resolve it, that we know that he can overcome it, that we need to be resolved and determined in our hearts that he can do it. He can move mountains in our lives. He can move any obstacle in our lives. But he wants us to not allow fear to overcome us so much that we just allow fear to control us. And we give up. And we become consumed in our fear. Daniel didn't do this. And God gave him, it's, it's, it's just amazing how God overcame the situation to say that the warden and the overseer gave in. Because the warden said, my life is at stake. Am I willing to sacrifice my life for you? He wouldn't have done that in his own spirit if God didn't intervene. And when God intervened, God had to intervene to where even Daniel said, listen, test your servants. Put me out there. And he says, deal with your servants if this doesn't happen. Let us eat of vegetables let us drink of just water. And I assure you, our countenance will be much better than your own. And then through it, what happened? It, the result was clear. We know that. But in the situation, it was like tedious and tenuous with great tension to know that he could lose his life. But he had such a resolve to even say, here, Lord, take me if you have to. I trust you, God. See, one of the things that when a person is determined, there, there are a few things that a person must have. I believe four characteristics here for one to be with great determination. One is conviction. you got to have conviction. you got to have such a conviction to honor God with everything than nothing else. You have to be willing to put yourself out there, even if it means being ridiculed or laughed at or thrown aside. You have to be willing to do so. That happened to me in Italy 25 years ago. The town that my parents grew up in is known as my town, my hometown, because I have my name written there. I'm an official Italian-American. All I have to do is go there and I'll live there, I think, for a year or two, and I become officially Italian. So what? But what, what happens is when I got there, they knew I was coming because my mother told everybody in town. She was there for three months. And everybody knew because they started on me with the Catholic festivals and whether or not I was going to go and celebrate with them. No. I wasn't going to celebrate because God told me not to because I needed to make a difference. 
I need to show them that my God is different from their God. And I did, and I took a beating for it verbally. One night was so bad that we had Italian Australians, Italian Americans, and Italians all sitting on the steps where my parents were married, and they were beating me up for two or three hours, giving me a hard time. And I kept standing up saying, no, I will not give in. How could you do this to your family? You disrespected your family, the reputation, your parents, all the people here in America, they're all looking down at you. I said, I serve my God. I'm not worried about my reputation. I mean, they verbally beat me up, cursing at me and all. And you know what? I sat there and I, I walked away discouraged. And I said, God, that was hard. I just went 15 rounds. I feel like I'm just going to go down. And he says, you just, ta- you just touched up a 128th of what Paul went through. But you stood your ground and you wouldn't let up. I said, Lord, I cannot let up. I will not. I'm determined and purposed in my heart to stand for you no matter what. It's not about me. And each one of us has to have that conviction. A conviction that says that we're willing to stand up no matter what. God has something for each one of us in our lives. To a family member, to a job. I did that at a job and I lost a job over and I was happy because God blessed me after that. But I didn't give myself to a job and God honored it. But you have to have a deep conviction. And convictions can be biblical convictions, which are objective, or personal convictions, where it's subjective. So what might be my conviction is not maybe yours. But this is a conviction that God has given me. Secondly, the courage. I mean, Daniel had courage to ask for that help or to say, I'm going to, I can't eat. That was courageous of him. He was willing to die. That's what it takes for someone who's determined, the courage to stand up in a loving way. He did it very honorably. He did it lovingly. And he said, I cannot do that. Thirdly, you have to have confidence in God. I mean, verse 12 is quite clear when he says, test your servants. That confidence that no matter what, if I'm going to die today, I'm going to be in the presence of God. But I will stand before God and say, God, I will stand for you. We know of many missionaries, many people, the prophets of old, who stood up and tested others before them, and God honored them. And lastly, we need to have a commitment like Daniel, because Daniel had the commitment to remain. And look what God did. At the very end, we know that God, he never gave up through it. And Nebuchadnezzar comes, and after the 10 days or so, he comes and he sees the countenance of the Hebrew boys and those who were in his court. And he recognized that they were different from the others. Why were they different? Because of Daniel. Because God honored Daniel in his determination and his resolve. And when he took a stance and been courageous, committed to God with great confidence, with a conviction, God honored it. That's what God calls each one of us in our lives. I challenge you that our lives are not simply to stay quiet. Our lives are not simply to just go with the culture. Sometimes God wants to use us to stir up the culture. Sometimes God wants to use us to stir up someone's life. Sometimes God wants us to teach others to stand for Christ. And I challenge you, as I've been for the last 10 months with you, 
That God wants a work in each one of us before he can do that in anyone else. As you move forward in as a church, each one of you have to be resolved in your heart, determined to believe that God knows what's best for his church. And unity comes when we're resolved. Unity doesn't come when we're constantly questioning, constantly fearful, constantly wondering and wavering. God doesn't want wavering. He wants a resolve, a determination saying, let's believe God together. And moving forward, that's what God calls each one of us, not here just in the church, but in our lives, with our neighbors. The resolve is to believe God for his best. And if he calls us to himself, then that's better than here. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I mean, that's our best place. But if God calls us even now, he's calling us with a purpose to say, I'm going to trust you. See, that's why God gave to Daniel. That's why God will give to you and I the opportunity, the grace, the compassion. We've messed up enough in our lives, but God continues to give us grace. With resolve and determination, we need grace. You know, Daniel wasn't just a determinator like I tried to highlight this. He was a determinator in that he had great conviction, but he was a man of prayer. Look with me to chapter 6, verse 10. Chapter 6, verse 10. This was after close to the, after the 70 years. And in chapter 6, verse 10, it says this, When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, the Persians took over in 539 B.C., he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber. But the document that was signed at that time was the document that everyone is to honor King Darius, and if not, they would be killed to honor him and his gods. Daniel didn't do that. Here's Daniel again, determined, resolved. He goes on, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. And he got down on his knees three times a day and he prayed and he gave thanks before his God. He was, he was not supposed to do that. He was supposed to be put to death. That's why he was thrown in the lion's den. He was resolved. He was determined. He wasn't giving in. Even after that 70 years with a new king, with a new country overtaking him. Daniel, see, what Nebuchadnezzar and these other countries tried to do was take his heart. They could change his culture. They could change the setting. They could change his food. He wouldn't give in to it. But they couldn't change his heart. He did not want to defile his God, pollute his God. He did not want to defile his heart. He was set and determined in his heart to honor God with everything that he had. Today's modern-day Christians... Can they be living to, according to these two convictions? There's biblical and personal convictions. And without compromise or conforming to any culture. So we have two different convictions. We all should be in agreement with biblical convictions, but our personal convictions could be different. And within these biblical convictions, there are biblical beliefs, and we can debate those. But with personal convictions, there's... Soul, individual soul liberties, as I call them. Everybody has a certain conviction towards something. But whichever conviction you have, they must all come short of sin. Otherwise, it's a compromise. So you and I either have conviction or we have compromise. Conviction 
if it's personal, you're not compromising your personal conviction. But that personal conviction must be wrapped into the biblical conviction. And in compromising, when you and I do that, we fall into sin. If we compromise our thought life, if we compromise things we shouldn't be looking on on our computers, or if we compromise when we know we shouldn't be talking about someone because we won't want anyone to talk about us in a bad, evil way, when we sin in anger or any jealousy, envy, pride, whatever that case is, compromise is sin. See, Daniel lived a life that was resolved. So what's going on in our lives? What's going on in your life? Do you have personal convictions convictions that you might compromise in your own life right now today? Are you allowing sin in your home? Only you can answer that. Is there anything in your life that is polluting you or needs to be cleaned out? It's anything. Thought life, something you're allowing in that you know is wrong. Men, women, leaders in homes, jobs. God's been telling you to say something to someone at work and you haven't been saying anything. Whatever that case may be, you and I have a call to live a life that's resolved. You know, Helen Keller, what I mentioned earlier, you know, she had some really cool quotes that I want to share. She was a woman who was determined. She was resolved. She wasn't going to let her disability stop her from doing what she was called to do. And here's what she, she said. She said, there's a few quotes here. It says, the best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart meaning the the heart of conviction. That's how I take it. She said, keep your face to the sunshine and you cannot see the shadows. Here's a woman who was blind. Beautiful, just fix your eyes on Jesus and you won't see the difficulties of your life as much. Walking with a friend in the dark is better than walking alone in the light. She had a friend. She had many friends. Lastly, she said, When one door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one which has been opened for us. So true. So true. We get so focused on closed doors in our lives that we forget about or we don't see the open doors that God has for us. So I want to encourage you today, as the worship team is heading up, I just want to encourage you. How can you and I live a life that's resolved? What's going on in our lives that needs to be changed? And see, I believe, and I've been reading a book, um, trying to run through it as quickly as possible, but I've been reading it through a book, and it talks a little bit about repentance, and it talks about should an unbeliever repent, should a believer repent, and I would agree that both need to repent. But believers need to repent, meaning they need to confess their sin on a daily basis. Why? Because we can get away from ourselves to where we miss out on what God has for us. But that should be something we do every day. But when you're doing it in a conditional manner and you're doing it every day, then repentance is not so hard. It's like working out every day. (laughs) If I would just work out every day, then when I go to work out once or twice a week, it wouldn't be so bad if I worked out every day. It might be tiring, but it will be easier every time I do it. My goals, I will reach my goal much easier and I'll be able to even attain it quicker. 
if I just work out every day, but if I just work out once here and once there, then I come home and my kids go, Dad, man, you look all sweaty and nasty. And it's like, it's because I'm not really working out enough. But if I condition myself, it would work out. Same thing with our spiritual condition. Are you praying? Are you repenting? Are you asking God? Are you resolved in your heart to trust God? Fear will get the best of you. God wants to get the best of you. So let's just trust God for that moving forward. I want to take a moment and pray, and then our worship team is going to lead us in a song. Father, thank you for allowing us this opportunity to be reminded of being resolved. To some of us, Lord, we don't understand it. To some of us, this may be new. To some of us, it's so hard to get to that place. Determination, resolve, purpose in the heart, that even goes against our own personality trait. But Lord, I pray that whichever it is that you would instill in us a desire to be determined to follow you, to be resolved to honor you in everything we do like Daniel did, to be convicted, to be committed, to be convinced, and to have a heart that's courageous for you. God, do that work in us today, we pray, as we look to you in this coming week. In Jesus' name, amen.